But I want to tell you a little bit about myself. I did not grow up in Louisiana. Some of you maybe can tell that by my accent. I still have people say, uh, where are you from? But then I go home to Washington, like we're going next month to visit my, my dad and some of my sisters, and they say, where are you from? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know anymore. I'm just a mixture. But I actually grew up in Washington State. I uh, was born in a city called Tacoma. It's about 30 miles south of Seattle, so I'm sure most of you have heard of Seattle. And I have gone to church since the day I was born. When the first eight years of my life when we lived in Tacoma, we went to a Methodist church. And how many of you know God can use any denomination? How many come from a Catholic background in here? A lot of you. How many of you came from a Baptist background? Anybody Methodist like me, Presbyterian? God's word never returns void. I don't care how dead that church might have seemed, but God used that Methodist church. It's the first place that I heard about Jesus dying on the cross. Now, at eight years old, I really didn't know why, and I didn't know what that meant, but God began to plant a seed. I do remember going home and asking my mom why he did that. What was our purpose? Why were we born? Were we just going to be born, live our life, and die? What's the purpose of that? Somehow God's put in you and I, we know we're born for a greater purpose. We, we know there is something more, and there's a God bigger than ourselves. And so I knew that. And then at eight years old, we moved to a little island called Fox Island, where I'm so excited we're going next month. Claire has actually been there one time, and it is gorgeous. And people who have gone there said, why did you move here? I said, well, I came to Bible college where I met my husband and never went back, and I didn't plan on that. <laughs> but that was God's plan. That was God's plan for me to meet my husband. And so there was a little church on the island that is still there. It's almost like a museum now where I... Um, Begin to go to vacation Bible school, but there was still something in me like, what is this God thing all about? Until about fourth grade, my oldest sister, I have two older sisters and one younger, no brothers, and then I birthed five boys. What's up with that? I'd have to tell my husband, what do I do? Is this normal? Because <laughs> I don't know about boys, but uh, I'm used to them now. Um, but I remember that little church on the island. My oldest sister got saved, born again, met Jesus, however you want to call that. Something happened, and she began to sing all these songs and clap. And this was the early 70s. And how many of you are as old as I am? I'm probably one of the oldest ones in here. But I saw a change, and I said, what I've been looking for, that's it. I didn't know how to get it. Fourth, fifth, sixth grade, there was even a friend that would ask me, are you saved? And I'd say, no. If someone would tell me, what that is, I would do it. But nobody knew how to lead me to Christ. Until I was about in seventh grade, I began to go through this youth group, and there was a handful of kids that grew into 600 kids. There would be kids sitting kids down here, down the aisles, everywhere. And this was in the early 70s, which is called the Jesus Movement. And if you're as old as me, you know that many, many people were sitting out in grass fields getting saved, playing guitars. And, you know, when I was in that little Methodist church, we would wear dresses like this. My dad would wear a suit and tie. But all of a sudden, kids were going into church with long hair, shorts, and the church people were freaking out. But it was a big, sweeping wave of revival, and that's when I gave my heart to Christ. It took me a couple years of listening to that because I kept hearing people give this, these testimonies like, I used to be on drugs. I'm like, I'm 12. I've never done a drug. <laughs> and are they talk about immorality. I'm like, no, I'm not any of those things. So what do I need to get saved from? I didn't really understand. 
But I can remember one Sunday bowing my head on that little church in Fox Island and saying the sinner's prayer and giving my life to Christ. I really didn't know what was going to happen, but I began to grow and flourish. I read the entire New Testament. It was either in the sixth or seventh grade. And was just hungry for God and began to grow and to flourish. And that's why I ended up my senior year meeting some kids who told me they had a Bible school in Lindale, Texas. This was 1980. Pastor Jacob Aranza had led my husband to the Lord in May of 1980 and told him, you need to go to this Bible school in Lindale, Texas. So God works all things together for good. So we ended up meeting there. I actually, he says that I didn't like him, which that's not totally true. <laughs> he had long hair. I didn't like the people who he, who he hung out with because he would hang out with these guys. They were kind of shady at Bible school. They would whistle at girls. And I'm like, this is a Bible school. And so, I lo- but I loved his heart. He, I still am attracted to the same thing on my husband that I was back then, his positive attitudes. No matter how negative I get, Pastor Baba is still positive. And his gift just to meet new people and make people feel loved and welcome. I know some of you probably experienced that in my husband. And so those are the things that drew me to him. So that's how we met. That's how I got here. And we actually lived, the ministry that we are a part of, Um, ended up moving to Tacoma, Washington, where I was born. And so we lived the first four years of our marriage up in Washington. And that church and ministry kind of began to fall apart, and we began to pray about what we were going to do. And I remember the Christmas of 1988, Zach was two, and our second son, Andrew, was one. And we had come to Louisiana to visit my in-laws in Lafayette. We were going home on that airplane, and you know, How many of you have been on an airplane before? As you're taking off and you just see the ground going away, I clearly heard the voice of God, not audibly, but I just knew. The Lord said, this plane is going back. You're going to be going back to Louisiana to live. And I remember thinking, I am not telling my husband. (laughs) They have roaches there. They have bugs, poisonous snakes, humidity. So I, I told God, I said, if this is you, you're going to have to speak to him. Well, about six weeks later, he was in his office at work, and he was just really praying the same way, God, what are we supposed to do? We know we're called to ministry, but it just seems like things are going nowhere. He opens his Bible to the book of Mark and reads the story for that day of Legion. Now, Legion was filled with a bunch of demons. He was in chains. And he ended up, Jesus touched him, and he got completely free. And he was like, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to go with you. And Jesus said, no, go back to your hometown and tell them the great things that God has done. Well, my husband had gotten saved and immediately left his family with Pastor Jacob doing ministry and then to this Bible school. And God said, Baba, it's time to go back to Louisiana so your family can see the great things. So he's like, well, God, I cannot tell my wife this. She does not want to go with the bugs. (laughs) He comes and tells me a few days later, and I go, I already knew. And he's like, what? I said, God already told me. I'm prepared. Let's go. So we loaded up a U-Haul. He rode with another. I got on a plane with a one- and a two-year-old. Claire knows how that is. (laughs) It was not fun. Actually, they weren't bad. And we moved to Lafayette where we began to, he began to work for stepdad and then eventually Pastor Jacob. And then we ended up in Jennings, 17 years ago. So I was a church baby, a church kid. 
never did drugs, alcohol, was a virgin when I got married, thought I was a wonderful and great, amazing person, but didn't realize I had one of the biggest sins of all. I remember I was a very quiet person. I'm still an introvert. In fact, to be up here like this is really not my forte. My husband would be making you laugh and do different things. Uh, I prefer one-on-one or small groups. That's where I thrive, even though I can do this. Um, But I was a very quiet, shy, private person. And I remember being in my 20s with those little kids, just telling, thinking, I'm just a private person. I'm not a people person like my husband. And one day God spoke to me and he said, Tracy, you're not a private person. You're a prideful person. And begin to see that my sin might not have been these wild things that my husband did. My greatest sin was pride. And through over the next 20 years, even though I had been saved 20 years by that part, God had to bring me on a journey of breaking me and making me, walking through suffering to break that pride. So what I want to speak to you this morning about is walking in humility. It's one of the greatest ways to bring freedom in our life, and it's what God's called all of us to do. And I want to start with a very familiar scripture. It is actually in the book of Peter. It's in the book of James. I love Peter, James, and John. If you don't know, these were three of Jesus' closest friends. He had 12 disciples, but those three he was really tight with. He would take them away to the mountain. He would share things with them that he didn't share with the others. So Peter and James actually quote King Solomon out of Proverbs. King Solomon was King David. I know you all have heard of King David's son. And he wrote the book of Proverbs. He was the wisest man. And so he first wrote the scripture that I'm going to read to you out of 1 Peter. And many of you have heard this scripture. But before I read it, I want to just pray. Lord, I thank you. Thank you for the opportunity just to be in your presence and to be in your house and to be with this family of other believers who are hungry for you, who want to worship you, and who want to know you more than anything. I thank you for your sweet presence that is here. I pray that your word would go out and not return void. I thank you how it even speaks to me, God. I pray it would bring conviction. It would bring encouragement. It would bring a challenge in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, now i got to get back to what I was saying. <laughs> um, I want to read you this very familiar scripture. I got my notes. I don't have the iPad like Zach. Because, you know, when you're over 50, you're just worried about electronics. wonder if the light goes out, the battery dies. <laughs> but my notes aren't going anywhere. But being older. I am now 55. I've seen a lot through the church, and I've seen the message is always the same. God the creator created the heavens and the earth. We the people messed up. God sent his son Jesus, right, to give us mercy and grace and forgiveness. So the message never changes, but I've seen the culture change, and I've even seen the church change from going straight-laced to then the Jesus movement Then we had what's called in the 80s, the name it and claim it. If you just live right, you won't have any suffering. Well, that was a lie. How many of you know that? What I've heard a lot of the last 10 years is a lot of messages on grace. How many of you like God's grace? 
We all need God's grace. There's been a lot, a lot of messages. I need God's grace. What is grace? Grace is merely God's forgiveness, his favor. Some of us grow up in churches and we feel like, I don't have the favor of God. He doesn't like me. He's mad at me. I can't talk to him. But grace says, I can talk to him. I have his favor. I have his forgiveness. But in the culture, I've seen a complete change. We live in the generation of entitlement where everything's for a lot of people want something for free right but us older people over 40-ish we know nothing's free nothing's free even God's forgiveness is not free it paid Christ paid a price but even if you think about it salvation is it free is it free it is but it's not. There's always something that we have to do. So it is free, but in order to receive it, we must confess with our mouth and believe in our heart, right? And we must begin to walk righteously with God. So it's free, but there's always something that we have to do. New life is free, but if you want new life, you must die to yourself. If you want greatness, if you want him to increase, you must decrease. If you want to find yourself in your identity, if you want to find yourself, you must lose yourself. So there's always something that you have to do. So when I read this scripture, I want you to keep that in mind. Because I'm going to talk about grace and how you find humility. So the scripture comes out of 1 Peter. I don't know if, do we have PowerPoints? I hope we do. But it's out of 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. And this verse says, God is opposed to the proud. Oh, we do have, thank you. <laughs> but gives grace to the humble. Gives grace. So is grace free? It is. But who gets it? The humble. The humble. So see, this generation wants something for free, but it's never free. There's always something we want to do. So if God gives grace to the humble, my part is to walk humbly, right? And what does it mean? We, a lot of us walk around through life thinking God is opposed to us. He isn't opposed to us. He's just opposed to the proud. So, and what, what is God talking about when he's talking about the proud? You know, because sometimes we tell our children, man, I'm so proud of you. That's not the kind of pride that God's talking about. That's the kind of pride where we admire the strengths that God's given our children. We say, I'm proud of you for using your strength and doing a good job. Or when we do a great job painting our house, oh, I'm proud of myself. I'm not talking about that kind of pride. I'm talking about the biblical kind of pride that is an arrogance and a conceit self-importance that is cynical and critical and says that I don't need anybody and that says most of all what pride says is my needs are more important than your needs. What humility says is your needs are more important than my needs. I can promise you everybody that comes to me for marriage counseling or me and Pastor Baba or Pastor Zach and Claire, you can, you can trace everything back to pride because what that wife is saying is, what about my needs? You're not meeting my needs. Or what that husband is saying, I have needs. That's what pride says. But what humility says is your needs are more important than my needs. Does it mean that my, my needs aren't important? No, it means that I've got to learn to find all my needs in Christ. So what is humility? I want to talk to you about humility this morning. 
So, of course, I'm the teacher type of person. I looked up a few definitions, and one of them says, having or showing a modest or low estimate of one's own importance. Does that mean we're not important to God? No, but we can't be number one in our own life. God must be number one. And I love this definition. If you ever want to do any studying, which I hope, how many of you read your Bible? I hope you read your Bible. I hope you study your Bible because it is life-giving. If you sit there and wonder, why is my life not changing? Why is my marriage not changing? Get into God's Word. It is your life. So I like to study, but I also like to look up definitions. And there's online, there's what's called the Urban Dictionary. I love the definitions in there. So this one I looked up in the Urban Definition of Humility, and it says, an admirable quality that not many people possess. Not many people possess. Now, I know some of you are probably sitting out there thinking, well, I'm not a prideful person. I'm not always bragging. But I don't know if you know this, but there's two forms of pride. There's two forms. There's one that thinks too much of yourself and one that thinks too less of yourself. And you might say, Miss Tracy, well, how is thinking too less of yourself pride? There's a great quote that says, humility is not thinking too much of yourself or too less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. See, we are always thinking about ourselves, right? Well, humility is forgetting about ourselves. I believe it was John Wesley one time, someone came up to him and said, how is it with your soul? He goes, I don't know, I forgot I had one. I'm so busy about the work of the Lord, I forgot about myself. So, not many people possess, and then it goes on to say, it means a person may have accomplished a lot or be a lot, but doesn't feel it necessary to advertise or brag about it. Now, you might be the kind of person like me, I don't go around at a workplace or in Walmart bragging or advertising, but I do want to do that with my husband. Sometimes I want to do that, you know, how come I'm doing all this stuff? Did you know I did the dishes? I did the laundry. I've been up until midnight with the baby, and I've, okay, I want to advertise sometimes what I'm doing. That is pride. So this morning, the perfect example of humility is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. First of all, if you just think this thought, okay, Jesus created the heavens and the earth, In the beginning, in Genesis, it was Jesus who spoke the world into existence, who sits at the right hand of the Father there in a perfect family with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, a perfect life. Can you imagine how humiliating it would be to come down and make yourself in the form of a baby? How humbling would it be to take that position, to come to a sinful, dirty earth and think about Jesus, too. He didn't, he didn't walk on the scene going, I am the Son of God, and I am here to save the world, did he? He didn't do anything. He just walked around, loving the sinners, welcoming people, letting the children sit on his lap, being himself. He never advertised himself. He never bragged about. In fact, many times the Pharisee said, who are you? And it says he was led as a sheep to the slaughter. He just stayed silent. It didn't matter that they knew who he was. He knew who he was, and he knew his father God knew who he was. He didn't have to advertise it to other people who he was and what he was going to do. So the perfect example is Jesus, and I love 
the scripture in Philippians. In fact, I love the whole book of Philippians. If you want to start studying a book, go to Philippians. <clears throat> Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul was a man who also walked a life of humility. And you know why? Because he was, at one time, the most proudful, prideful man there was. Paul was what was called a Pharisee of Pharisees. A man like Paul in the Jewish and Hebrew community had to memorize the first five books of the Bible, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He had memorized all, memorized, he could quote them like that. He had also memorized the over 600 Levitical laws. There wasn't just the Ten Commandments, there was over 600 laws. My husband could tell you the exact number. All of that. He said, and I have not broken one of them. Can you imagine? the pride. He didn't know who Jesus was, and so he actually thought he was a false prophet, and he had Christians martyred and crucified, and God one day knocked him off his horse, blinded him, led him to a man filled with the Spirit of God, and he began to preach and saying, everything that I've learned, everything that I've done is like dung, okay? Nothing. It means nothing compared to knowing Christ. So this is the man who wrote this in Philippians. In this chapter 2, if you're following along, starting at verse 3. And Paul says, don't be selfish. Okay, we could stop right there and preach a whole sermon on that one. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Are other people better than you know? We all have the same value. Red or yellow, black or white, small or tall, doesn't matter. We all have the same value. But what Paul is saying, if you would think of other people as better than you, then you would walk a life of humility. This is what Jesus did. And he says, don't look out for your own interests, but take an interest in others all too. You must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. So in other words, he was God, but he didn't walk around saying, I have all these rights. This is who I am. You shouldn't be treating me like this. You're ruining my reputation. He didn't do any of that. He had the attitude of humility. It is boiling hot in here. <laughs> thought I'd just put that in there. It, it, was anybody hot out there, hot in here? Okay. <laughs> Pregnant woman is like, yes. Though he was God, he did not think of himself as equal. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. Now think about that. There's another version in the Bible. I'm reading from the NLT, the, uh, the New Living Translation. There's another version that says that he emptied himself. And I looked up what emptied mean because I have some commentaries. I have a Strong's Concordance. And in the Greek, it meant he gave up his divine powers. I was blown away when I read that because I thought, okay, well, the reason Jesus could live a sinless life is because he had divine powers, right? And that's how I can't live a sinless life. This, Paul is saying, is he gave those up. In other words, he became human just like you and I. He had no more power than you and I to live a sinless life. How did he do that? 
He walked in humility. He stayed in constant communication with his father. If you go back and you read the Gospels, if you've never read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he was always talking to his father. And he was telling them, I don't do anything except what my father tells me. I don't go anywhere. I don't do anything. And how many of us wake up every day? We don't even give God a thought. We make our own plans. We make our own decisions. Jesus never did that. Always, Father God, I need you. Get up at 4 in the morning. Had to be 4 in the morning because it says it was still dark. He'd go away to the mountain, always with his Father. So he didn't hang on to the fact that he was equal with God. He didn't make that a big deal, even though he was. If you find yourself all the time saying these three words, it's not fair. You're probably not walking in humility because was the cross fair? It was not fair, but it was love. It was absolute divine love. He never said it wasn't fair. He put himself aside in order for us. He gave up his divine privileges. He said, your needs are more important than my needs to show who I am. All of us were, made, were more important than Jesus. That was a life of humility. Amen? So I'm going to give you, and I'm going to run through these real quick, some signs. Well, Miss Tracy, how do I know if I'm walking a life of humility? Because, you know, when I was that young Christian, I didn't know I was prideful. I didn't know I wasn't walking in humility. I thought I was good because I didn't do the drugs. I didn't do the alcohol. I didn't sleep around with boys. I didn't cheat on my taxes. I did, quote, everything right. So I thought I was good. I didn't understand my pride. And so I've written out 12 different things, if, you, if you're taking notes, signs of humility. How do you know you're walking a life of humility? The first one is, just like Jesus, he was willing to be rejected. He was willing to be rejected. You know, we talk a lot about in our society, society, well, I just have the spirit of rejection. And a lot of people do have that spirit of rejection. But Jesus willingly took it on. And what he was saying is, I'm not rejected from my father. I'm loved. I'm accepted. I, he had his identity as in, in his father. But willing to go, it doesn't matter if other people reject me. God has fully 100% accepted me. And that's all that matters. When you grasp your identity, in Christ, it doesn't matter what other people think. You are accepted by the Father. Amen? So the next sign of humility, are you willing to share your weaknesses, faults, and sins? See, that was my first clue that I was living a prideful life because I wasn't willing to share that. I knew them, but I wasn't going to go to my pastor, and I wasn't going to go to my friend, and I wasn't going to go to my life group leader and say, you know what, I'm really struggling with this. Can you pray for me? Can you help me? If you're not willing to do that, you're walking in pride. And I promise you, when you start to begin to do that, share who you really are, nobody will reject you. They'll go, me too. They'll relate to you. They'll know they've walked through the same struggles. And in fact, they will respect and honor you more for doing that. Because it takes more strength to humble yourself to say, I've got a problem. If you 
hide in your shame and you aren't willing to share your weaknesses, you will never find freedom. As soon as you share that struggle, how many of you shared a struggle before in a life group and immediately the power of it was broken? Some of you, your hands are going up. You know what I'm talking about. But for others of you that are still sitting there struggling, it's because you're unwilling to share that you have struggles. We all have struggles. So willing to share your weaknesses. That third one is willing to not have to prove you're right. When we first got married, oh, I'm telling you, I wanted to prove that I was right. The bad thing, I'm kind of the personality. A lot of times I am right. Don't laugh at me, Luke. (laughs) I make good decisions. I make very deliberate decisions. But I wanted to prove it. And I've learned through the years of marriage, you know what? It really doesn't matter. If I was right, it was show in the end. If not, my husband will learn from it and grow. It doesn't matter. I would rather stand before God humbly than having to prove that I was right. The next thing is, are you willing for God to fulfill you rather than a person or your performance? Now, we have two kinds of people in this room. We got your people pleasers and we got your task-oriented people people. And we're always looking, well, if people approve me, then I'm good. Or did I do a good job? Did I do a good job? But are you letting that fulfill you? Are you letting Christ fulfill you? Are you spending time with him saying, you're my beloved. Man, I'm so proud of you. Wow, you did such a great job. I love you. Not only do I love you, but I like you. See, I've learned to hear those things from God. So when someone else says, I don't, I don't really like you, now they haven't said that to me, but I've heard them tell other people that, I can go, it's okay. God likes me. God likes me. Finding who I am in him. Willing. The next one is willing to build up and esteem others as better than you. Does that mean you don't have gifts or talents? Absolutely not. We all have strengths. We all have gifts and talents. But think about John the Baptist. You know, he was willing to say, hey, when Jesus started baptizing people instead of John the Baptist. He didn't go, hey, hey, what what are you doing? He's like, no, 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 he's the man. He must increase. And he began to go backwards and say, I must decrease. It's him. It's all about him. So you're willing to let others receive the credit. I wasn't willing to let that either. When we first started the church, I remember giving my, my husband ideas and tips or a different scripture or a story, and he'd get up and share it, and he wouldn't give me the credit. And I would get so mad. I was like, that was my story. He could at least said, my wife told me this great story. You see, that was my pride because I wanted to get the credit. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. All that matters is that Christ is glorified. And s- How many of you have even had that at work? You've done something and someone else has gotten the credit. You went, wait, that was my idea. It doesn't matter. Are you willing to go? It's okay. God knows who I am. God sees, because that's the truth, God does see. He sees your faithfulness. He sees your hard work. He sees everything that you do, even when your husband or your wife doesn't, or your coworker. He sees it all. And in the end, he will reward. He will give honor to whom honor is due. It's not our job to do it. It's his job. The next one is, are you willing to love people with all their imperfections? Isn't it funny how we want to be loved just for who we are? Man, just love me. I mean, I know I got faults and mistakes, but somehow we want them to change. (laughs) You know, I'm a good one for that, you know. Baba, you need to work on this, this, and this. Well, what about myself and the things I need? 
to work on. I just need to love him for who he is and let God work on me. Amen? Are you willing to receive your trials as God's instrument to perfect you? Are you willing to receive your trials? See, some of your trials are brought on by yourself. You know, if you just drank a 12-pack and got a DWI, that's a trial brought on by yourself. (laughs) But there's many trials like Job. If you read the book of Job, he really didn't do anything but honor his God, and yet suffering came. Yet suffering came. And are you willing to go, God? You know, some of you know my husband just recently went through some more medical stuff, and I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to fly to Atlanta, take care of things, deal with him being tired, feeling sick, because in my pride, I'm like, this puts more work on me. And I was kind of angry. But I had to stop in my bath one, one day and say, okay, God, what else are you trying to do in me? This suffering, this trial, there must be something else that still needs to change in me and that I still haven't got because you're allowing us still to go through this. I know you can 100% heal him, but obviously you're still doing something in us. Are you willing to say, God, okay, do in me what you need to do through this suffering? That's not easy. Are you willing to not be defensive or justify yourself? I was also really good at that. You know what? If you hadn't have done this, and I wouldn't have been mad. How have you done that? There's no justification for who I am. I'm a filthy, rotten sinner. My husband didn't make me yell at the kids or do this or that. Yes, looking at our pain or our wounds and how people hurt us, that gives us a reason many times why we are the way we are, but it gives us no excuse. And we have to keep that in mind. There are reasons. Yeah, I might have been hurt, wounded by my father, my mother, my spouse, my friend, and that's why I act this way sometimes, but it doesn't give me an excuse. It only helps me understand why I am the way I am. Does that make sense? Yes. So the next one is willing to give up controlling, fixing, or directing things. We want to control things. It takes a lot of humility to go, okay, we'll do it your way. Even in our mind, if we know that's really not the best way, it's hard to let go. I had to let go because I felt like, you know, financially I can do things a lot better than my husband. And I, I am good with finances. But there's times I had to just let go and go, you know what, God? Whatever. I trust you. I trust you. That's hard. Is anyone else a controller? They like to feel safe. (laughs) We're not safe, okay? Let me just tell you that. We're not in control, and we're not safe. It's false. (laughs) Only God is in control. Are you willing to be misunderstood? I didn't like that one either, man. There's a lot. See, that's why I told you I'm preaching to myself because there's a lot I I don't like on here. I didn't like to be misunderstood. They just don't understand my heart. Oh, well, God does. He understands me. Willing like Jesus to be of no reputation is the last one. And if you think about it, God obeyed and walked in humility out of love, not because he had to, but because he wanted to for you and for me. He laid down his life. So these are some signs of whether or not you're walking in humility. And I don't know about you, 
but I want to walk a life of humility because God says he's opposed to the proud, and I don't want God to be opposed to me. I want his grace. I want his mercy. I want his favor. If you don't forget anything, remember, pride says that my needs are more important. Humility says your needs are more important. And you can go back to the book of Proverbs where I started with King Solomon. And he wrote many, 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 many scriptures on pride and humility. How pride ends in humiliation, but humility brings honor. Humility brings honor. Proverbs 27 says, let another praise you, not your own mouth. Proverbs 18 says, pride goes before destruction. If you will continue to walk in pride, not sharing your weaknesses and your fall, thinking your, your needs are more important, you will eventually fall. But if you walk in humility, eventually God will honor you. I think about my in-laws. In fact, pray for my mother-in-law. She's been going through a lot of health issues. Pastor Baba's mom, they thought she had a major stroke last night. It was probably just a mini stroke. But I remember our in-laws years ago. We didn't have favor with them. They were always criticizing us. Oh, you think you're so great. You think you're this. You're a Jesus freak. And I remember God just telling Pastor Bob and I, just keep walking the life of humility. Well, after about 25 years of that, it flipped. Guess who the first person my husband's stepdad called last night is my husband. Can you pray? I'm just arriving at the ER. They honor us. Sometimes we want the honor right away. But sometimes if you just keep walking a life of faithfulness and humility, God will one day honor you. And even if it isn't here on this earth, one day you might walk into heaven and everyone thought, who were you? And you might have the greatest honor. And people are like, what in the world? Does that make sense? God sees, even what you weren't honored here on the earth, God will see that. I recently read an interesting fact, and I'm about to close up here, but um, I read a lot. I love, I love to read. I love facts. And recently I read a statistics how a lot of people end up at the emergency room because they've fallen on the stairs. And... I remember when I was a little girl, I was probably three years old, and I can still remember falling down our basement stairs. I can still remember my mom, ah! Mamas, you know how that is, screaming and going, grabbing me up, checking my head. I fell down the stairs. Well, and I read a lot of people go to the emergency room falling down the stairs. No, falling on the stairs. I always thought it was falling down the stairs. But the statistics say that 63% of people fall walking up the stairs, and only 37% fall walking down the stairs. And I thought, what a great analogy. When you try to walk up in pride and put yourself in a place that you shouldn't put yourself, you're much more likely to fall than when you're walking humbly down the stairs. You might trip at times, but you're going to be much less likely to fall. Walk the road of humility. And one of the second to the last scripture I wanted to read is, you know, I hear, I hear people coming to me all the time. How do you hear the voice of God? I don't feel the presence of God. How do you have a relationship with God? Where is God? How many of you ever asked those questions? Well, God answers in the book of Isaiah. He says, I live in the high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite 
and humble. That's where I am. I'm with the humble. I'm with the broken. It says, I restore the crushed spirit of the humble and I revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. Think about it. For us to even get saved and to repent, it takes humility, right? It's humbling to say, I need a savior. I'm really messed up. I got a lot of problems. That takes humility, doesn't it? But this is where God says he is. With the repentant heart, with the humble, with the crushed spirit. So maybe you're wondering, where is God? Humble yourself and say, God, I need you. I'm not doing anything. I'm messing up. Or call someone. Say, can you help me? Can you pray for me? That's when God comes in and his presence meets you. That's where he's at. And lastly, I'm going to share a scripture out of Micah. Micah was one of the minor prophets. But before I do, I want to share one last little thing. It's funny how you remember things from your childhood, and I still remember that church on Fox Island where I told you about where I bowed my head and I gave my heart to Christ. And for some reason, I still remember the teacher in the Sunday school, small little room, and it had the rope with the bell tower, and we would pull the bell down and ride the rope to the top with the bell. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, I'm crazy. (laughs) Um, But I remember the teacher writing this on the board, Joy. And she wrote it like this, J-O-Y, down. It's the first time I'd ever heard of an acronym. She goes, if you want to walk a life of joy, I want you to remember this. J stands for Jesus first. O, others second. Y, yourself last. How many of you know medication for depression is one of the number one prescribed medications in our country because so many people are dealing with depression, right? The opposite of depression is joy. Do you want to have joy? Put Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. And we get this all messed up. Sometimes Jesus is last, ourself first, or some of us are people pleasers and we put others first. But Jesus first Always your relationship with Jesus. And then if you will go out and begin to serve people, minister to people, help people, others, their needs first, you won't even have to worry about yourself. Your needs will automatically be taken care of by Christ himself. Joy. Good thing to remember. And last, I wanted to read a scripture out of Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. Do we have that scripture? I don't know if we do. And it says, what can we bring to the Lord? Should we bring him bird offerings? Should we bow before God most high with offerings of yearly calves? So what the people are saying is, okay, we're a mess. What can we bring him? What can we do? Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oils? In other words, can we give him millions of dollars? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? I ain't sacrifice of Pastor Zach, my firstborn, and I don't have millions of dollars, but the people are saying, what do we do? And Micah goes, no, 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 you got it all wrong. This is all you need to do, people. The Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you. You don't have to pay for your sins. All you have to do is love mercy, do what is right, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Isn't that awesome? We don't have to pay for our sins. We just have to walk humbly. That is our part. He already did his part on the cross. 
and we just have to do our part. Walk humbly with our God. Let's bow our heads.